Hey, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. You can become a patron of Sly Flourish by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and signing up. You get access to all kinds of exclusive deals, previews of upcoming stuff, exclusive videos, exclusive adventures, all kinds of neat stuff. But most of all, you help me put on shows like this. Happy Halloween to everybody. This is a fun day and I've got some fun, lots of different things to talk about. I am hoping to get to lots of patron patron questions. One of the other advantages of being a patron of Sly Flourish is we do a monthly Q&A where we put up a thread and you can ask any question that you want inside the thread and we either talk about it in the thread, we either, I might do a one shot, like a single YouTube video about it, or I might talk about it here on the Lazy D&D talk show, which is probably how most of them, most of them get talked about on the talk show. So I'm hoping to get through the October ones today. I don't think I'm going to get through them all, but I'm going to give it a shot and then we'll start up a new thread and if people had a question that was really burning they could put it on the new thread so but we also have like a million kickstarters to talk about first of all the lazy dms companion kickstarter is over it was really really great uh, i want to thank everybody for all of the amazing support that we got more than ten thousand backers which is just that's just insane it's it's you know it, it blows me away and that's just awesome. So, of course, I take my not, anxiety isn't the right word, but I take the energy that has come in from this and I'm pouring it into making this book awesome. So Scott Gray and I are already digging into the layout. We are going through the edits. We're making lots of, you know, little little uh, bits of changes. But the book looks really good. It looks really strong. So I'm very I'm very happy with that. Artwork is coming in. Maps are coming in. All kinds of things going on. One big question is as soon as the Kickstarter closed, I got a bunch of people that said, hey, I missed the Kickstarter. How do I get in? We are going to have a pre-order page set up probably Monday. I'm hoping this Monday we have it. The main thing you can do, I, and I'll have a link on Sly Flourish, and I'll put the link in the note below. You can go to slyflourish.com slash companion, and this will be the hub page where you can get access to all of the different locations where you can pick up the book or pre-order it or whatever. You can also get the sample pages. And of course, it's got, you know, talks all about the book and shows off pages and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, so that was just that's just so great. So what a what a crazy month that was. I was just sitting back and my mouth, jaw on the floor as support continued to come in. Really awesome. Yesterday, I ran my annual single session Castle Ravenloft adventure, which was really fun. I like it's a it's a it's a tradition I like to keep up. Uh, I kind of grab different groups of people, bring them in, and we run a single session of Ravenloft. And I've talked about this. I have an article on Sly Flourish called "Running Ravenloft and Curse of Strata as a Single Session." You can see that in the in the show notes. Uh, you can Google it too if you don't want to look at show notes. And I talk about different ways to run this. And so there's there's a couple of different things that I'm still like I've run it like a dozen times now, but there's still like little tricks uh, that I have. But one of the neat things I wanted to talk about is I figured out a fun way to kind of shake things up. I created a list of 12 notable people, personalities inside Barovia. And my thought was, and this actually worked out really well, is you essentially have three roles for Ravenloft. You have the hunted, which is often Irina. You have the seer, who is often Madam Eve. And you have the devil, which is often Strahd. And with these three roles, the hunter, the seer, and the devil, you can actually roll three times on this table and decide who is your seer, who is your hunted, and who is the devil. And it can make for a really interesting change. So it's a D12 list. Let's, let's, let's have some fun. So who is our hunted? Our hunted is five. Irina, okay, so she remains the hunted. Who is our seer? I rolled a five again. Two, our seer is Blinksy, right? Blinksy, the toy maker. 
And who is our villain? Who is the, the devil? The devil is Exanthier, Exanther, right? The lich. So in this case, you can still run Castle Ravenloft. You still run it the same way. Only now, Blinksy is your seer. And the seer also acts as sort of your, your a patron, right? The, the, the NPC who draws the characters together. So maybe in this case, you say, like, you are all constructs that were made by Blinksy who he's sending in to Castle Ravenloft to save Irina from Exanthier the Lich, who has taken over Castle Ravenloft, you know, managed to defeat Strahd and, and took over Castle Ravenloft. So you have this whole different, on top of the other random elements about where the items are and how you use those to defeat and where the villain is, the, the other parts, the fortune of Ravenloft. In this case, you now have changed up the other NPCs too. So it's a really interesting way. I ran it yesterday and then we had Baba, Baba Yaga, I changed Baba La Saga to Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga was the quest NPC. Irina was still the, the hunted and Strahd was the villain. The difference was that Baba Yaga sent in the characters to get Irina's soul back from Strahd, who was wearing it in an amulet around his neck. And after they went through the castle and after they found fought Strahd and, and beat him, he, they found out from Strahd that he was he was preserving Irina's soul because Baba Yaga wants to use it to you to create a hag out of out of Irina and then the, the last decision the players made was are you going to give it back to her or are you going to are you going to give it back to her or are you going to take your fight to Baba Yaga and they said we're going to take the fight to Baba Yaga so they went out they saw Baba Yaga standing there they saw her big hut they came out and they ignited the, 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 they ignited the sun sword and that was where we cut the scene and it was really cool right and instead of them coming in on a cart to the place they were coming in in her walking hut in the in the in the baba yaga's hut with the chicken legs right that was the vehicle that was taking them to castle ravenloft really fun so that was a fun angle that worked out that worked out really well and i i enjoyed it i enjoyed it a lot there's two parts that i struggle with every year that i've run it i've i've had two parts that i've struggled with and one is that i the the timing works pretty well which is you let the players know you have three hours and 15 minutes to find as many of the three items as you can find in Castle Ravenloft. And at that point, Strahd is going to show up. And that way, if you have a four-hour game, I usually do like a five-hour game, so there's a little bit of time for breaks and there's time for other people to show up. But when you when you have that time limit, when you say you have three hours and 15 minutes to get through the castle, and when that, when that timer shows up, when, that, when it ends, Strahd is coming for you or the devil is coming for you, right? And that way, it's like this kind of scramble to get through the castle. The problem is we had six players, right, which is a lot of players. And like they, they barely got one item, right? They just got it. They just picked it up. And as soon as they got it, Strahd showed up. And it was kind of fun. And that worked out. But everybody was a little stressed out of like, you know, we're taking a long time doing this stuff. And so the timing, three and a half hours or three hours and 15 minutes is really, you're not going to get very far, which is okay because Castle Ravenloft is huge. And this means you can run it uh, year after year. And it's interesting, exciting. My wife has been in every one of these that I've run, right? And she's like, yeah, I'm starting to know what the catacombs are like. <laughs> like She's like, I remember the teleportation things that sent you to the cells. The other trick is that Strahd is a hard, he's a very hard villain to run. I have now run Strahd like 12 times. I have TPK'd groups. My friend Chris is in the chat and he got, he was in there when we got a TPK and he's a hard villain to run. You he's either really frustrating to fight or he's a total pushover and trying to find the balance between being a tough guy to fight and being a pushover is really, is really hard. And the reason why is like the sun sword is blooming sunlight. So it's very hard for him to be effective when he's within the aura of the sun sword. 
And so he can offset this with things like improved invisibility, which is really powerful. He has fog cloud, which also works really well. So he has other ways to kind of deal with it. But it's, it, you know, I'm a pretty experienced DM and I've now run Strat a lot of many times. And it's still hard for me to really make sure that his threat stays up, even if characters have the items, but it's still, you know, he's still, he's still beatable. And I've been thinking about like, okay, well, thinking about how Watsi is now doing stat blocks, that they're, they're kind of removing all the spells because a lot of his power is in the spells that he's got. How could you make a stat block for Strahd? And I'm probably going to spend more time on this for next year, hopefully, if I remember. And I want to design Strahd and I want to, I think I'm going to redesign the, the three items so that they work well in this single session sort of event that he essentially has things. He has powers that you want to offset by using the items. The powers are, are you know, if, if he's, if the powers aren't offset, he's harder, but he's not a total pushover if you have all of them. Right. And then I also want to make him easier to run because he's just a pain in the ass to run. So I, I actually started making a custom version of Strahd. I call it Strahd 2021, just so I could remember. And I was trying to say, like, how do I make a simpler version of Strahd that is easy for me to run? Kind of build off the principles of an action-oriented design, like Matt Colville's action-oriented design, and also built on the idea of some of the new things we're seeing with Watsi's design for their monsters, because I think those designs are really good. And... One of them is I got rid of anything that doesn't affect combat or won't have an effect when he shows up, I remove. So most of his vampiric vulnerabilities, for example, it doesn't matter about the running water. It doesn't matter through the, about the stake through the heart. We know all that stuff. But it does matter about the fact that he has he takes 20 radiant damage and he's at disadvantage on attack rolls when, he, when he's within sunlight, which is the whole thing with the sun sword. So I kept that in. He's got spider climb. I gave him blind sight. Right, blind sight 60 feet. And I gave him that for a particular reason. He can see in darkness where others can't. When he is reduced to half of his maximum hit points, and I, I change it to max, half max because I want to change his hit points, you'll notice his hit points is higher than normal. It's like 140 normally, and I bumped it up to 200. And the reason why is that offsets two things. The crystalline heart is already built in, and his regeneration is already built in. That way I don't have to worry about regen. I don't have to worry about the crystalline heart. I just I know what his hit points are. I can go. Again, making it easy for myself. When he's, when he's reduced to half his hit points, he surrounds himself with a swarm of biting bats. I think that's very vampiric. The swarm moves with him and it heavily obscures the area. That way, people are at disadvantage to hit him and he won't be at disadvantage to hit them even if he's in sunlight, right? Because of his true, because of his, his dark vision. Or, I'm sorry, because of creatures in the area are halved. I'm treating it like a, like a uh, spirit guardians. And anytime somebody either starts their turn or moves into the aura, they take 13 piercing damage, right? So there's this big pile. That's probably too powerful. And... It's cool, right? It's very vampiric ability. The thing I want is I need a way for the characters to be able to offset it. Like I want, I want them to be able to get rid of the cloud of bats. It should be there for like a round, but after one round, I want them to be able to get rid of it. So I'm not sure how to do that. I might, I might do something where he gains 50 temporary hit points. And while he has those temporary hit points, the bats are there. When the temporary hit points go away, then it's removed. You know, I think that that, I think that that could be one way to handle it. So it still has his normal, his normal um, unarmed strike and his bite, I bumped up the bite damage to 21, which is 66, not in 3d6, that's an error. Because like, a bite should be a really big deal. It's hard for him to pull it off, and it should be a big deal, right? So I really want this to be to be a strong one. Then I also gave him a DC-based spell, Necrotic Bolts, uh, two creatures within Strahd's choice within 60 feet, and makes a DC 17 con save, taking 27 necrotic damage. This is his version of Lightning Bolt, right? He doesn't need to see the targets so that he can do it even if he can't see, although he can see because he has, he has blind sight. 
And I like that he chooses two creatures and hits them so that we don't have to worry about him lining things up. It also means if he's at disadvantage, he can fire it off. So that's a nice, you know, it's a nice, that's like his version of the fact that he's a necromancer and a spellcaster, right? But we, it gets rid of that giant pile of spells. Then as a bonus action, he can beguile. He, he can do a DC 17 wisdom saving throw. This will be a charm effect. I forgot to put that in here. He can make somebody take their reaction to move towards another creature and then attack them with a melee attack. It's his version of a quick charm. It doesn't take away character agency, so they won't be like completely removed. Probably he's not going to get a good chance to do this because a lot of times paladins can get rid of charm. I thought that'd be cool. And then step into shadows is his mixture of shield and teleport and invisibility piled into one. When he is a hit with an attack, he can teleport 30 feet to a location he can see and turns invisible until he attacks or casts spells. So now he's hard to hit. He moves around. He's hard, you know, very skirmisher style guy, right? But it packs together a bunch of spells in one compact reaction. So now he's got attacks. He's got actions. He's got bonus actions. He's got reactions. And then he's got his legendary actions. He can move without provoking. He can do an unarmed strike. He can bite and he can fire off his necrotic bolts if he wants to use all three. And that's it, right? So pretty straightforward. He, he can He can handle himself when he's within the aura of sunlight. So that still works. He would be pretty hard to beat, especially with this cloud of bats. I think I'm still working on this. I just whipped this up last night. So I'm still working on this, but I think it's a more straightforward version of Strahd that I think can can work out. Lamlord says, if you did roll Blinksy, for example, as your devil, how would you alter his stats? Would you make him a vampire? I don't know what I would do. I would probably find some kind of appropriate stat block for Blinksy. I think it would be really fun. Then the question is, what are the three items and why do they affect Blinksy? I think Blinksy as a vampire would be really cool though, right? Blinksy as the toy maker, right? And he's Blinksy the vampire. I think it'd be really cool. So, you know, I think it'd be real. How did I build this page? I used the, I, I did a homebrew monster in D&D Beyond. Anybody can do a homebrew monster in, in D&D Beyond. So you can whip it up there. I took the Strahd stat block, started with that, and then modified it. Anyway, so that's something I've been thinking about. Like how to rethink Strahd in the new Watsi design to make it easier to run and go with that. Next up, Fizzband's Treasury of Dragons is out. I do not have my physical copy yet. I'm hoping to pick it up on Monday. I got to make sure my, my friendly local game shop but I want to pick it up. But I, I have it for D&D Beyond. And I took a good glance through it. I did like a skim through D&D Beyond, which isn't as good as doing like a sit down with the book. And I've started reading the first couple of chapters. And I like it a lot. Is it as good as Van Richten's Guide? Van Richten's Guide is kind of my new benchmark for a really, really excellent D&D source book. I really like Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. So I'm hoping it's as good as Van Richten's Guide is, but for dragons, right? And I, and I think... There's nothing to tell me that it isn't as good. So far, everything that I've seen, I've really liked. There's lots of interesting stuff, lots of cool stat blocks. I've looked through a lot of the stat blocks and I really like what I'm seeing there. I, I haven't done like deep dives on a lot of it. There's a lot of question of like, the high level stat blocks are very straightforward and very simple. Will they be able to withstand a high level party who has so many weird ways of doing things? I look again at Strahd, right? That so many characters have so many weird things that they can do that... How do you account for that inside the stat block of a monster? So how do you look at like the, the aspect of Tiamat? Will it actually stand up against a high level group of characters as well as like the original Tiamat stat block did? I'm not sure. So, right. The zombie speed mammoth, right. Is a big, a big question. So yeah, Greece, right. Greece banish zombie speed mammoth technique, moon, moonbeam. So like there's so many ways for characters to, to be able to affect a, a high level creature can you make a simplified stat block that will actually be able to survive is a big question. So I don't know. I need to look at it. I do know that like the Tiamat, the aspect of Tiamat stat block. Let's take a look. We can take a quick look at one. The aspect of Tiamat stat block 
has 10 legendary resistances. And I'm a fan. I'm one of the few. There's been lots of talk about legendary resistance. And is it is it like, is it really lame? Does it suck? And Matt Colville actually wrote a tweet about it where he said, like, you, you know, you're probably not thinking about legendary resistance, right? You're supposed to be able to bash them down. Like, you know, they're not an infinite pool. It doesn't just negate saving throws right it only does it three times and once you break through those three you're essentially whittling it down and then the fourth one they won't have a resistance for but the aspect of team it has 10 of them which is just ridiculous right i don't know why it had 10 legendary resistances that's a that's a whole lot cr30 so at cr30 like the gloves are off right it should be hard 574 hit points eh, that's probably about right that seems might even be a little low ac23 that's pretty high uh, big one is immune to stunned, right? So it's immune to a lot of different things. Blinded, charmed, deafened, frightened, poisoned, and stunned, which means stunning strike. You can't just punch it 15 times and take away all its, all its different aspects. Chromatic wrath, uh, if reduced to zero hit points, gains current hit point total, instead resets to 500 hit points, recharges or chromatic flames, regains any expended uses of legendary resistance. That's five. That's you get a five. Additionally, has aspect now options in the mythic action section. So they, they're using the mythic mechanics a lot more, which is which is cool. So that means it has essentially, I said, I said 574 is low. And it's not low when you add another 500. So now it's 1,074 hit points. That's a lot. That's a lot of hit points. Five legendary resistance. Uh, bite is 23. Look at this. A bite with force damage, right? Uh, a bite is 23 plus 19 force damage. That's cool. 21 points on a slash and grappled and restrained. That's big on a claw. Right? It makes how many attacks? One bite, one claw, one tail. Tail attack is 23 and knocks prone. So that's that's pretty that's a pretty big deal. Oh, immunities to all elemental damage. Yeah, that you know that's that that's hard. Chromatic flames. This is its breath. Their 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 breath weapon. Our aspect exhales multicolored flames. 300 foot cone. DC 27 dexterity saving throw. Dexterity save, though, means that you know, a lot of characters might be able to just reduce it to zero because of like shield mastery or evasion and things like that. 71 damage. Not crazy. You could, against these, at CR 30, you could probably double that damage to 140 points and it'd still be better. So I would probably throw, I would, I would not be afraid of doubling this, this amount of damage. I don't know, the other attacks and everything like that, I don't know, but you know breath weapon 140 point breath weapon like that's going to get people's attention remember you're probably doing this against level 20 characters so 140 points is not out of hand legendary actions claw or tail attack the furious bite aspect waves bite attack if the attack hits a creature creature must succeed in wisdom saving throw or become frightened okay very interesting that dragons don't have frightening uh, frightening presence anymore that's really interesting hurl through hell so this is interesting she only gets three legendary oh no those are mythic actions so mythic action, she gets to add onto her legendary actions. Hurl through hell is really cool. She grabs you and she chucks you and off you go into hell, right? And DC 25 charisma, 44 psychic damage, banished evidence. Again, you could probably double this damage against level high level characters and you'd probably be fine. And they disappear, right? Really cool. Chromatic flare, uh, probably breathing like in an area. So really cool. The question is like, can this thing be pinned down and beaten? You know, can it, can it be, you know, are there ways to completely like negate this stuff? And I'm not, so... I know that this Tiamat is probably not as hard as the original Tiamat because the original Tiamat had a had a the crazy ability to breathe a bunch of times and then use Divine Word to kill people. I might give this aspect of Tiamat access to Divine Word. I'd, I'd just pick that up and drop that right on here. So there's a few things you could do on this CR30 guy. But overall, the stat box really good. It's simpler, it's easier to run, and I, and I dig it. So that's just an example of like a really high-level monster from, from, from Fizzbands. So, so far, I'm liking what I'm seeing. Like I really like that they're dragon followers. And the interesting thing about the dragon followers 
is that you could reskin these into just general NPCs. So if you were looking for, hey, I want the, you know, I want the the new versions, which I guess are coming out pretty soon, right? I want the new versions of of Wizards NPCs instead of so like priests and stuff like that. You could grab these three because there's essentially like a wizard, a cleric, and a I think a fighter style, and you could reskin these into new NPCs. So the Dragon Blessed is like a priest, right? And you can see at the you know, Mace or you know two Mace or Radiant Bolt attacks. Mace does four plus eighteen Radiant. That's a good deal of damage at CR five, right? So that's how much how much damage? Four point eight twenty two forty four points of damage at challenge rating five. It's a lot of damage, all right? Radiant Bolt uh, can do two of these, right? Two Radiant Bolt attacks plus six to twenty two Radiant damage, and they heal with each one. So real straightforward you know cr5 but look like really only a couple of things range attack and, and regular attack i like it i'm 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 happy at four ac 14 75 hit points good stuff and then has i like that they kept the spell casting thing in here and and that and that works out really well I, I, the dragon chosen this is your fighter style right pretty good only challenge rating three so kind of a veteran style one hand axe attack and two short sword attacks hand axe it can either throw it or hit and and the hand axe returns uh sword is just a plus six to hit which is pretty good attack bonus and seven damage on each hit biting rebuke immediately after the chosen takes damage from a creature it can make a short sword attack with advantage against that creature pretty cool right kind of a fun a fun build and then you have sort of your wizard style right i think i think this is sort of a kind of a wizard yeah wizardy style right challenge rating two and 36 points pretty low on hit points but it's only cr2 two thunderbolt attacks right melee or range that's really good it can do it right up on top of you or it can do it from range and it's up to 60 feet 13 thunder damage and the target is pushed but it makes two of them so that's 26 damage is cr2 that actually seems a little high right that seems that seems like a lot of damage for a challenge rating two monster disarming words reaction when a creature the speaker can see makes a damage roll the target can roll d6 and subtract the number so it can actually reduce so that is a fun you know these are these are fun npcs with fun abilities that fit those roles of cleric fighter wizard right and you could you could use these as generic cleric fighter wizard stat blocks and reflavor them as you would so i dig it i'm liking the design that i'm seeing i really am interested in digging into the dragon lore i love the idea that like this book is a, is, is there to help you build a dragon campaign i kind of dig that let's talk about some kickstarters there are a ton of kickstarters that have come out a ton of rpg kickstarters that have come out and i'm going to touch on just a few of it seems like a lot of people it, it's it's i think it's pretty well known that you don't want to run a kickstarter during december so I think November is the real last chance to get a Kickstarter in before you'd have to do it next year. And I don't know that you want to do it in January either. So there's like kind of a two month area where you don't really want to run Kickstarters and people have figured this out. So people are running lots of Kickstarters. My friend Christian is doing a Kickstarter for Amazing Encounters and Places Volume 1. Uh, this is Christian is a primarily does cartography. I think he's here in the chat too. Is he here in the chat? He's here in the chat. Say hello. Primarily does cartography, but has done lots of different products. Started off in DMs Guild doing a lot of work there. Branched out and has done a lot of experimenting with stuff in drive through RPG as well. And this is this is Christian's first Kickstarter. And it's a it's a it's a it's a powerhouse. So you can actually get a what happens? 46 page preview. Who puts out a 46 page preview? I thought I was generous with 18 pages. He puts out 46. So uh, if you want to see what this is going to be like, you can download a free preview of the whole of, of, of the book that shows you the kind of stuff you're going to get. Amazing stuff. Really well designed. Beautiful, you know, beautiful look to it. 
and uh, really, really cool. So, so definitely check this out. Obviously, it is a, a book. Here's the whole the drop. Eight, eight drop-in locations with their lore, different terrain types, regional maps, six standalone encounters you can drop in that scale from 1st to 20th level. He and I talked a lot about what it means to scale an, an encounter from 1st to 20th level. Whole ar- overarching plot, lots of stuff. 64 maps. And the maps are beautiful. And I believe as part of the Kickstarter, you can pick up map packs. Hey, look at these maps, right? So this is obviously very, very strong from a from a, a map standpoint. Really, really cool stuff. So check it out and and oh, you can see what my selection was. Don't don't look at that. But yeah, you can. What are some of the the pledge levels? He's doing a very generous thing. Where if you're in a if you're in a country where where the currency is is weaker than some of the some others, you can pick up a uh, a lower a lower cost version of it. But you shouldn't if you live in a country where the currency is strong. And about 21 bucks US gets you the full PDF of it, which is reasonable for the, for the size of the, that it's coming. So really excellent. Check it out. Uh, it's in the show. Look at the maps. I think he's doing map packs. Christian, I think you're doing map packs that you can, you can get, right? So yeah, I think you can actually get poster maps of these, of these encounter maps. And encounter maps are really the, the, the strong suit here. So great stuff. So check out Amazing Encounters and Places. Popeye Kobold's Guide to, Popeye Kobold's Guide to Villains and Lairs. So uh, my friend Jeff Stevens is putting this together. Uh, there was another Potbellied bo- pot Kobold's Guide to Adventures, I think it was, or something like that. And I wrote one of the ones uh, in a bunch of different adventure layers in a book. And this is his new sequel for it. It is a, uh, he broke his funding goal. Very good. So it's going to happen. A book of monsters and villains and lairs. Very cool stuff. He's got a lot of different writers. Ed Greenwood, Ginny D, Anthony Joyce, you know, lots of different, lots of different. John Four, Richard Green, Christian Zuck. Hey, look, you know, Ginny Loveday. Wow, look at all the writers he's got for this going on. I would have done it. He, he did, he did, he did ask if I would, if I would participate and I'm just too busy. I would really love to, but I'm doing a lot of stuff. So really cool stuff. Great artwork, really excellent design. Look at the, the maps are really cool, right? So lots of good stuff. So check that out. That's an, another Kickstarter by Jeff Stevens for a bunch of villains and layers. And, and having done a book of villains and layers, I don't think you can have enough of these. Like I did, we did uh, Fantastic Layers last year. So really cool stuff. Plane Breaker is Monty Cook Games' MCG's uh, new fifth edition campaign adventure source book thing. I, I am a sucker for giant alien moons. So when you have a giant alien moon crashing through the multiverse, I'm on board. Like I'm, I'm ready to pick it up. They've already, they're already at 2,200 backers, $235,000. They do big monster money. Money cook games has done many kickstarters. I have not been disappointed with any of them that I've ever backed. I backed this one, you can see I backed at the Explorer level. I want all the hardcover stuff. They make excellent hardcover stuff. So really, really cool stuff kind of their take on the planes i don't think it's going to be like your your planescape style but maybe a little bit but yeah the whole the whole premise of it is really exciting so yeah really really great stuff i mean really uh, the the plot one one thing about all the monty cook game stuff is just it grabs my brain and stretches it out like this their ideas are really big in scope wonderful writers Really interesting thing. One of the interesting things about Monty Cook Games is they don't use freelancers. Everybody that's writing the books are employees of Monty Cook Games, full-time employees of Monty Cook Games, which is an interesting style. It means that, you know, they're not necessarily they're 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 not necessarily giving freelancers all a big shot at their at their at their products. But on the other hand, it means that the people that are there are dedicated 100 percent to the product that they're making for this. And I think it shows. 
right? I think that you can see it when like Bruce Cordell is writing a 256 page adventure on his own, right? That's like, it's, it's the equivalent of like having Chris Perkins write a 256 page adventure on his own. You get these people that have been doing these for 25, 30 years that are just 100% dedicated to these new things. So, and the full-timers get benefits, right? So yeah, so it's an interesting style in this industry, right? Bruce Cordell, Sean Reynolds, and Monty Cook, right? Like <laughs> those are three very, very, you know, big names in this industry that are all focused on one book. So yeah, all, all kinds of stuff. And then, and these, these, right. It's got, it's got what it's got different, a, a series of different books, right? It's got the adventure path, but I think it also has monster books and everything else. And this is also their foray into fifth edition stuff. Yeah. Planeer beast, bestiary, plane breaker player's guide and path of the plane breaker all, all together. So three, three different books that you're getting for this whole thing. So really cool. But like, you know, I now have Tolus for fifth edition. I got Arcana of the Ancients for fifth edition from them. So they're becoming big fifth edition, which is cool. Do I see myself going to the planes with that book? I don't know. We'll see where it goes. Like one thing is like I buy tons and tons and tons of books and I don't really have an intention of running them all, but I like them because they, they, they get me into these worlds, right? They, they let me fall into these places. I like surrounding myself with them. You know, because I get to live in these places for a little bit. So it's okay if I don't run them. They are just pure inspiration. So yeah, Plane Breaker looks awesome. One thing I also want to mention about Monty Cook Games and Numenera is that there is now a Numenera Humble Bundle going on. So you can pick up like the entire Numenera, 28 Numenera books, including the core books, right? It's kind of interesting because the core books are like deep. They're deep in there. There they are, right? You get Numenera Discovery, which is the core book for Numenera, plus all of these other books for like... 25 bucks in pdf that's ridiculous it's ridiculously cheap right like most of the time one of these pdfs is 25 bucks so talk about like seeping in in, and just soaking in inspiration this is a fantastic way to to really dive in i love numenera i love the system i love the world most of all really really great stuff and the ability to pick up all of these pdfs weird discoveries was actually when i read this it inspired me to do fantastic adventures in a very similar style so i've taken a lot of ideas and a lot of inspiration from money cook games and i highly recommend them and this is just a a nutty a nutty deal right for for, for picking up the entire you know 28 you know 28 28 bun- item bundle. Numenera is its own system. Yeah, it is It is using a system called the Cypher system. You, of course, the whole system is inside Numenera Discovery. If you get this book, it has the whole thing. And it's it's really, it's a really cool system. I love it. So check, if you have not, if you've not gotten into Numenera, this is by far the best way I have seen. It's an incredible deal. I highly recommend it. Check out the notes below. The last Kickstarter I want to talk about this week, and I'm not even covering them all. There's there's others uh, that I'm not going to be able to cover this week, is uh, The Book of Ebon Tides by Cobalt Press. So you have Money Cook Games doing a Kickstarter. You have Cobalt Press doing a Kickstarter. Big companies that are all getting their Kickstarters in. 1,500 backers. This is The Plane of Shadow, and it is written by, I think, Wolfgang himself. Wolfgang Bauer himself is is writing a big, a big chunk of this. And again, it's going to have like a player's guide. And, you know, you're going to get a lot of different things with it. So looks really cool. I, you know, I mean, anything Cobalt Press puts out, I back, right? I'm a huge fan. And again, I've never been disappointed with any of the back, the Kickstarters that I've gotten from, from, from Cobalt Press. So they're an instant back for me, right? And I get, and I back the hardcover versions because they put out outstanding hardcover versions of these books. So yeah, I, I really dig it. The idea of a plane of shadow. I don't know what the difference is between the shadow Fay and the plane of shadow. And maybe it's the same thing. Maybe it's just, you know, we're kind of renaming this stuff. So, um, pretty, pretty cool stuff. I'm kind of surprised it's not doing as better than, better than, than it has been, but it's still, 
it's still happening. So that's great. Yeah, really outstanding stuff. A lot of these companies, Monty Cook Games and Cobalt Press and other other companies are they're building their business around Kickstarter, right? Like this is this has become how they're how they're how they're how they're doing it. A lot of companies are building their businesses around Kickstarter, which is really interesting. Kickstarter's really great stuff. And I just love all this stuff, right? I just, I get excited about every one of these products, right? I'm closing in on 200 backed Kickstarters at this point. And I just get excited by them. And when they come up, I'm very excited by them. So, you know, it's a great way. And and optional rule says they kind of have to. How else do you get noticed these days? And that's the thing. Like, I mean, we saw it with my Kickstarter, right? Like, there's no way I'd get that kind of support like that, that I got for that book if it wasn't for the Kickstarter. And the same is for these other ones. And the other thing is it doesn't hurt sales later. Right, that, that when you put out a Kickstarter now, the people that got in on the Kickstarter now, they get their books, but it doesn't, it, it, you, there, there isn't anything to show that you would have gotten more sales if you didn't do a Kickstarter. So yeah, they're really, you know, they're, they're really, really powerful. And, and they're great ways to do business. So I'm not knocking them. I think Kickstarter's great. I think it's great for me as, a, as somebody who backed 200 Kickstarters. The products that I'm getting are better because of Kickstarter. These products, I, I know this as a producer, but also looking at companies like Dwarven Forge, where they completely changed their business around how they did it. Kickstarter has made their products better. Kickstarter is making all of these products better. I think the outstanding RPG products we're getting for 5th edition and for other RPGs, Kickstarter, I don't think we'd be able to have nearly as many of these, certainly not at the quality level that we would. I think when they talked about the original Numenera Kickstarter, it was going to be like a brochure. He's like, it was going to be like a staple bound book and it ended up being this like multi-volume set right and that's because of kickstarter let's talk about some patron questions i'm gonna i'm gonna hammer through some patron questions so matt r says what types of encounters work best for a session one excellent question i'm going to assume we're talking a, a level one session one that your first session of your campaign what are the kinds of things you want to do i'm going to assume that you are starting at first level i know a lot of dms like to start at higher levels but and, and they can they can figure out what they're going to do. I'm going to talk about first level. And I have a few thoughts. One is there is some basic mechanic stuff. I like to think of your first session as uh, a stern conversation and, and a converse, a stern conversation and a fight with a giant rat. Right. That is like my model for a first level adventure. There's and there's a couple of angles. One is you probably don't want to run any monster against the characters higher than a challenge rating of one fourth, because a lot of like one half CR one half monsters like like the thug are really hard against first level characters like they a thug can knock out a first level character in one go and because of pack tactics and stuff like that they can really do it and even then you want to be careful so so probably don't want to run any monster with a challenge rating more than a quarter a cr one one fourth right you also probably want to run fewer monsters than characters so if you have you know with a minimum right you, you generally don't want to have you know, equal to or more monsters than there are characters because they'll overwhelm those characters and kill them pretty quickly. So fewer monsters and characters and make sure those monsters are challenge rating one quarter or less. Those are my two kind of balancey rules of thumb. If you do have like one thug against all the whole party, that can, that can work out. So a challenge rating of one half can work if there's only like one of them, right? If they're only fighting like one person. But that can be trick. That can be tricky. The other part is what kind of encounter makes sense. And this is where I, I, I have debated this with other very smart dungeon masters who disagree with me on this. I think that it's absolutely suitable to have characters have low stake adventures. I think it's fine for the bartender to hire the characters to go down in the basement and fight the giant rats that have mutated down there. And I actually think a good DM can make that really interesting and fun. 
that I think levels levels matter and you don't want to run the same kind of an adventure for a first level character that you'd run for a seventh level character or a 13th level character. And you can see where this starts to break down in adventures. And and the, the, the one that comes to mind is often uh, uh, Tomb of Annihilation, where you have a 20th level NPC who comes up to first level characters and says, everyone's dying and we don't know why. We're going to send you into this, into this um, uh, jungle and we want you to figure out why all the high level people are dying and not coming back to like they're, they're souls are disappearing like that you're, you're sending first level characters on a 20th level job right why would they send first level why not go get some seventh level characters right so you want to make sure that it makes sense that new adventure what what adventures make sense for new adventurers right and it's low stake stuff it's there are some bandits out in that tower that old ruined tower outside that have been harassing people on the road. There are goblins that have been uh, grabbing up the trade caravan, right? They've been stopping that. We need help. I've got rats in my basement, right? And, and I got an issue with that. Or there's a strange cultist out in the woods and we want somebody to go figure out what they're doing. Small stake adventures are absolutely fine for, for a session one. And I, and I like them. The other thing my wife brought this up is that it's a good opportunity to drop in the seeds of the bigger campaign. So think about you're running a Horde of the Dragon Queen Rise of Tiamat adventure. Having them fight cultists of Tiamat at first level works, right? If, if, if like you were going to change that slightly. Given, given the idea that there's uh, that you're fighting uh, uh, cultists of the dead three in uh, Descent into Avernus, but there's this clear fiendish thing going on to, that clues you into the fact that there's a bigger effort going out here. It's a good opportunity to drop in the seeds of whatever your major campaign is. I, in my Curse of Strahd game, I usually have Strahd show up at first level. He doesn't fight the characters, but he's there, usually in like a wolf form or a giant bat or something, watching them. So the characters would be like, holy cow, is that our boss? Is that the guy we're going to end up fighting? It's a good way to do that. So you can seed in that stuff. Low stake adventures are good. Low CR monsters, like one quarter or less and have fewer monsters and characters. So hope that answers your question. Andrew H says, I'm getting ready to run Dragon of Icepire Peak as a one-on-one -on -one game with my 10-year-old son. My son really wants to play a bard. Since this is his first game, I want to encourage him to build the character he wants, but I'm nervous that his character will have a tough time in combat. I was wondering if you have any additional advice for running combat for characters that are not combat-focused. Yes. First of all, you can, you can really offset this with a sidekick. And there are a couple ways to do sidekicks. The, the uh, Dragon of Icepire Peak, the 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 Indie Essentials kit has sidekick rules in it. Tasha's also has sidekick rules in it. But you can also just roll up another character, right? It doesn't have to be a sidekick. You can just roll a champion fighter. And a champion fighter would actually be a really good character sidekick for a bard. And the... You, so if you are playing with somebody who's new to D&D, &D, the DM might want to run that sidekick, but that sidekick should always be deferring to the character for like what they should do or where they should go, you know, and, and basically, and, and, and the, the player who's playing the bard should be able to tell the sidekick what to do. And then when they're comfortable, maybe they take over the character sheet. So they have two character sheets, one for their main character and the one is a sidekick, right? And that can work really well. And I think... You can use the sidekick rules, but the thing about the sidekicks is they're actually kind of weak. But a straight character, you can roll it up in D&D Beyond. It's really fast. You can pick like the core four, the fighter, fighter, cleric, rogue, or wizard, and then pick like the default build. What's the easiest subclass for that build, like the champion or the thief or the life cleric or the evoker, right? Pick the most straightforward one and make it as easy for that one to run, but always be deferring to the character. The character is still the center focus of the game. So I think that that, I think that that works well. Yeah, somebody brings up pets. There's new rules for building. I think does, I think in Tasha's, you can create a sidekick of any monster, so you could give them a pet that levels up with them as well. That's certainly an option. 
Uh, Rang Rangdo says, I don't have an issue running scenarios versus antagonists with motivations and intelligence, but how do you have any tips for designing and running ones that feature natural hazards or disasters like earthquakes, storms, floods, fires for any system? Yes. So I, I like to think this is this is why we were talking about fronts rather than villains, although I've started using villains, the term villains again, because it's like easier to understand and fronts is a, is weird jargony stuff. And, but you can have a villain that is just a natural disaster. Now, I kind of like to have supernatural disasters, right? I think it's more fun if it's not just an earthquake, but it's like, you know, something underneath the earth has awoken and now earthquakes are occurring, right? But these sort of natural disasters, they still run like a villain. They still have all of the things we have when we think about running villains in the lazy DM system, which is built loosely on the power by the apocalypse system for, the, for this piece, right? And that idea is who is the, what is their motivation and goal? What's their motivation? What's their goal? And what steps are occurring that the characters will see that show that they're going towards that goal. And you can do that for a natural hazard. Again, we'll go with like a super quake, right? Let's, let's go with like the, the big one, the, the, a huge earthquake that's gonna eat an entire continent, right? We'll go big scale. So you have this thing, well, what's its goal? Its goal is to eat the continent, right? That's its goal, that's where it's headed. Its motivation is to destroy, right? So very straightforward motivation, very straightforward goal. But, and then what are the portents? Well, the portents are small earthquakes that have that are occurring in the area. Maybe one that eats a castle that was really important, right? Tsunamis that are coming, weird weather patterns that are changing. There's all kinds of steps that are going along the way and the characters have to go stop these disasters, right? Just like they're a villain. Like, how do we prevent this from happening? Is there a way to do it? So I think you can treat natural ones. Again, I go with my sentient alien moon, right? An alien moon is crashing through the multiverse and is headed here to destroy this planet. Why? To, it destroys all life. That's its goal. Find life-giving planets and smash through them and destroy them. That's what it does. What is the motive? You know, what are the what are the portents that take it there? Well, one could be crazy cultists. You know, you know me and my cultists, right? Crazy cultists have begun to worship this moon. Old books are discovering that they, they're describing a prophecy that these moons are, are going to arrive. The stars are starting to disappear slowly from the sky, right? Weird things, weather patterns. You know, there's an object that we can see. It's like a black, small black moon with like an outline and it's getting bigger, right? And people are using like little protractors to be like, holy cow, it's getting closer. What do we do? And there has to be a way to stop the sentient alien moon. So you can use these like non-villain villains. You treat them just like a villain. They have a motivation, they have goals, they have steps, and we write them up the same way. A lot of it is the, what, are, what are those things in, in, in the Powered by the Apocalypse games known as like grim portents. What are the things that the characters can see that show that the villain or the disaster in this case is escalating? What are the things that are gonna show them it's escalating? And then of course the story is, well, how do they stop it? How do you stop a big earthquake? How do you stop an sentient alien moon? Maybe you steer it somewhere else, right? Send it into the abyss, open up a portal and get rid of it. Who knows, right? Interesting stuff. Jamie asks, when coming up with the campaign Six Truths, what sort of facts should I look for? Excellent question. So the Six Truths are the one time when we think about cam lazy campaign building, right? When we're building a campaign out, but, or a campaign or a, a world or whatever, uh, it's one thing where we're not doing spiral development by focusing on the characters and looking outward, but you still kind of are. And the six campaigns are like the, the, the easiest way to do world building, right? It's, it's a bullet list of six things. And those, the criteria for the six things are they, they're, there are things that characters already know. 
you don't have secrets here, right? You can have secrets somewhere else, but these are things that the characters will know because you're going to put it in your one sheet. You're going to show it to your players. They're going to go, ah, because a big part of what these six truths do is they tell your players what makes this campaign different from all of the other ones that you've played, right? Right. Why am we playing this one and not the others? How is this world different than Lord of the Rings? How is this world different than Forgotten Realms? What are the things here that set it apart from all the other campaigns? Uh, what are the things that you can tell the players so they know what kind of characters to build? Right. If you're doing a very dungeon delvey thing, you might throw six true. You might throw truths around the fact that there's lots of dungeons and lots of people exploring dungeons. So you really want to have stuff that are that are really helping the players get their head around this campaign. What's different about this campaign? What kind of characters can they build around this campaign? Those are kind of the key things that you want to do for the six truths. And then, of course, you zero in and say, okay, now what are the things around the characters? What's the location like around the characters? What quests are there? And so on. That gets into spiral development. So I have some videos and, and videos. I, we talk about this in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master as well. And I think it, it describes it describes these ideas. But that's, that's sort of the gist. Do you have advice for running or preparing published adventure dungeons? How do you manage to keep all of the information? This is, this is the key that made me really want to answer this question. How do you keep all of the information in your head as you write as you run while also paying attention to players. Are there any lazy steps to dungeon prep? I find running dungeons to be a very good lazy DM place. I find it easier to run dungeons than almost any other part of RPGs because they're fixed and focused, right? I know kind of where they are. I know kind of where they're going. I don't necessarily know every single path they're going to take, but I can, dungeons are nice fixed locations. They have hallways and rooms. They're only so big. There's only so much stuff going on in there. There's only so many people in there. So they're easier for me to get my hands around when I'm running it. Uh, the key is you don't, you don't keep all of the information in your head right? You have it in front of you. If you've, so these are published, you specifically asked about published adventure dungeons, which means you have a book, right? Or some, some equivalent. You have a book or PDF or it's online or something like that. It's in Dini Beyond. And the key is like, you want to read it, right? It's worth your time to read it. And then when you're running it, you'll, you, you know, you don't have to memorize it. You just, you know, you know, oh yeah, right. This is that room with the weird elevator trap, right? And you, you, when the characters go there, you read it. The lazy trick is that you don't know where the players are going to go. So you don't bother to prep certain rooms. There might be some rooms that are harder than others. Like I just ran Curse of Strahd last night, right? I ran Castle Ravenloft, which is one of the most, I think it's like, it's the most complicated dungeon I ever typically run, right? It's really, really big. I mean, it's like 80 rooms and a bunch of sub rooms. And there are a couple locations where I'm like, I got to pay more attention to that one because it doesn't work right as written. And that's like the Gollum room. I think it's K74 or K76 or something like that. It has a Gollum room and there's a bunch of weird stuff. And you read the old one and you read the new one. They're not anything alike. And both of them will wreck a one-shot game. So I have to change that. The weird elevator trap in in there is another area where I often get stuck, right? So like I need to pay attention to figure out like, how do I understand how those work? But generally speaking, I don't have to do a lot of extra work and I just run them where they go. And I think it's perfectly fine to relax when you're running it and stop and say, give me a second. Let me just read up on this. And you read up on the room. And go, okay, here we are. Right. Players are with you. They're, you, you don't, it, it doesn't have to be this absolutely perfectly smooth cinematic voice track the whole time. Right? It's okay to take a second. Right. And, and read it. It, you know, go with flavor text, right. When they have read aloud text, go with the read aloud text. It's okay. It's, you know, it's, it's good. So 
Any extra steps for lazy DM prep? No, other than read it and don't don't expect you have to have that memorized, I think is really the big the big things for running a dungeon. And and I find, and I don't know if everybody else agrees, I haven't done a big poll on this, but I find dungeons to be one of the easier things to run because they're fixed locations. They have walls and halls and and hallways. And it's it's just easier. I I don't know. I just find it easier to run dungeons uh, than I do typical places. Step back history. Step back says you mentioned that big predictable encounters like boss fights should be well thought out beyond the hibachi style. I love to hear what your process is for doing that and what inspiration you might use. Uh, really good question. And yes, so a lot of it, and and so so Dan Dillon, I actually had an opportunity. Opportunity on Twitter, I asked Dan Dillon was talking about running high level D and D. And he had some, I asked him, what would be your top three pieces of advice for running great tier three and tier four campaigns? Because he was talking about it. And he gave me three really good ones. He said, know your, know your party. And I think this is when we talk about boss fights. Actually run the numbers and how much damage they can produce and absorb in a round. Compare that to the damage output, hit point totals of encounters. It's like cheating. CR is the TPK check. Knowing the PC's actual capabilities lets you tailor encounters. I think that's a big piece of building a boss fight. Look at the players. Look at the characters. Look at what they're bringing to the table. And figure out how you can tune around that. Now, if you're running a one-shot game like yesterday, I didn't know what kind of classes we were going to have to fight Strahd, which is a clear boss fight. And we had two clerics, two paladins, a rogue, and a bard, right? And then like two clerics both put up spirit guardians. So we had two sets of spirit guardians hitting Strahd at the same time, right? I didn't know how to account for that. So then I have my dials, right? The dials let me let me tweak things to account for the fact that, oh man, so many smites, so many spirit guardians, you know, so much going on. And they beat them legitimately, right? But that idea, like you really want to, if you have the opportunity... You really want to understand, you, you really want to understand what the capabilities of the characters are and not to take away from it. Your goal isn't to offset it. Your goal is to make sure it stays a challenge, right? And also let them show off those abilities. So if you have players who love crowd control, right? They, they love banishing. They love hypnotic pattern. They love a lot of their crowd. Give them lots of things to control. Give them a lot of monsters that they have to deal with because they have to crowd control them if they're going to survive, right? That way they have the opportunity. If you have clerics who love turn undead, you don't say, I'm going to get rid of that. You say, I'm going to give you 50 skeletons so that in the middle of the fight, all of a sudden, all the walls open up and skeletons come pouring out and they go turn undead, boom. And the skeletons get destroyed with waves of this thing, right? That's really cool, right? So yeah, you want to understand the capabilities of the characters both to make sure that the challenge stays good, but also to 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 show them off, to show off what they can do. If the, you have big fireball effects, give lots of lots of creatures and know the way where they're going to go. Like I knew when I was running, I was running a particular battle against a legendary creature, but I also had that legendary creature had a sidekick that was this huge powerful creature but wasn't legendary, which meant if you're going to banish anything, banish the big thing and you better keep it banished. Because it'll be in real, you guys will be in real trouble if it's not, right? And it took them like three shots to banish it, but they did, and it saved their asses, right? So I had a banish absorber, right? And the banish absorber really worked. Lord Gazumba is here. Hey, Lord Gazumba. I love waves and mass combat. I love it too. And and Lazy M Companion has an easy way to handle lots of lots of creatures. So what the Dan Dan had a couple other ones. The story matters. Yeah, this isn't so much for building a boss fight. Uh, this is for high level stuff, but I'll share it. Story matters. Connect the characters to the world in the ultimate story, and lots of mechanics take a back seat. Don't be afraid to hit hard. It's okay for non-boss encounters to hold very high CR monsters, especially if they make sense given the story previously mentioned. At the same time, don't sweat not always challenging them. They've earned their power let them flex it good good tips from dan good stuff so 
Yeah. So that the, for anybody that's not from, what's the hibachi style? The hibachi style is we're winging it while we're running it. We have all the components in front of us in little bowls, you know, metaphorical bowls that we use to tell our adventures. But when you're doing a boss fight, we should actually take time to think about the boss fight. The idea that I'm sitting here thinking about where's my Strahd? Somewhere's here. I had a Strahd up, right? I guess I got rid of him. Thinking about what, how I can change Strahd to really fit the campaign that the one shot deal. It's taking time, right? It's going to take me a few hours to make a really good Strahd. But when I have a good one that I like, I'll use them for years, right? So I think it's worthwhile. But that's, that's you know, those big climactic battles, you want, to, you want to spend time thinking about how they're going to work. And that idea of really paying attention to the capabilities that the characters are bringing to the table, I think. Soul says, I don't, want, I don't know how to convey to my players why a spell failed in character. Was it legendary resistance? Is the monster flat out immune to that sort of attack? Did I make it save? I don't want to expect the player to have to memorize the monster manual. And it all seems clunky to tell them that a spell did or didn't work. But it also seems cruel to expect them to, ex- to do extended experiments to figure out exactly what's going on. Do you have suggestions? Yes. First of all, I like to tell my players when a monster is legendary, right? I will, I will broadcast that. This is a legendary foe. You know Strahd is a legendary foe. And if people are like, what does that mean? You go, that just so, because they're going to question the mechanics anyway, right? They're, it's not like you can't stop them from thinking about the mechanics. So you say, like, that means they're going to have legendary actions. They're going to be able to attack in between other people's turns. And they have legendary resistance. They can automatically succeed on saving throws up to a certain amount of time right? I don't mind telling players that that exists because we're talking about mechanics here. We're talking about gameplay. This is one of those areas where like the story is very important, uh, but you can move back. An interesting thing I heard is that the level up 5e, the uh, level up advanced 5e, this is the, the N world new take on fifth edition. They're, they're doing their, their their Kickstarter. I think I talked about their Kickstarter last week. Um, they have legendary monsters too, but the, the legendary monsters have physical things that represent legendary resistances. So imagine you're fighting a lich and the lich has three gemstones embedded in his forehead, right? Bang, bang, bang. And every time he's hit with a spell, one of the ge- and he makes a save, one of the gems explodes. And you're like, ah, he's only got two of those left, right? I did this a lot in fourth edition, right? Have pillars and monuments that could absorb spell effects or could give extra hit points, right? I ran a version of Orcus where Orcus had four pylons and each one had a, had a thing that um, made him immune to any, any, you know, each one had something that, that shielded him and those had to be destroyed before you could really do a lot to him. It gave him extra damage. It gave him extra saving throws. It gave him you know, extra hit points, you know, all the different things. And then you destroy the pillars and you do it. So there was a physical reason for legendary resistances. I think that's a cool idea. And it'd be neat if that was wired into 5e, but it's not. You could do that. You can add it in. Why does the Lich get three legendary resistances? Why does Strahd, has he got, you know, an amulet with three little gemstones in it, right? Why does the Tarask, you know, he has these three protrusions on the back of his head that are causing him to have saves. But the only ones go ahead and tell him. I think it's fine to say, like, after trying to strike this guy, you believe he might be immune to stun. That's fine, right? Like, tell, give, give as much information as you can. And it's okay to break the story, to tell them about the stuff. So they're not, what you don't want to do is it's not worth taking away agency from a player for the sake of the story. Most of the time, there's probably circumstances where it's okay. But generally speaking, you don't want to punish them by, oh, you suck. You, you cast fireball on the fire elemental. I mean, in that case, you like, you probably need to find out. But you know, you say like, your character is pretty confident that fire is not going to hurt this guy. Go ahead and tell him right? Players are, you know, it's hard being a player. Give them some help. 
Peter C. says, me and my friends planned an RPG weekend. We rented a house, fireplace, whiskey, and probably a lot of bad humor. Also, many hours of D&D. We're in a long-running campaign where we start with Dragon Heist, and now in, uh, the story links to Waterdeep and Mind Flayers, lower levels of uh, Dungeon of the Mad Mage. So my question is, do you have any tips to prepare for marathon sessions? I thought this was interesting. If you happen to be running marathon sessions, what do you do? My answer is that you you break it up into pieces, and hopefully... It's not so, hopefully your campaign or the adventure that you're going to run is linear enough that you could break it down into multiple pieces and know that you're going to hit all of those pieces, right? And then you, you treat each one as its own adventure, a three and a half, a four hour adventure and prep it like a four hour adventure and do all your secrets and clues, do your strong starts, you know, do, do that kind of stuff. Go through your, your eight steps, but do it for the four hour block and then do one of those for each of the four hour blocks. Now, you can be fuzzier with the outlying ones. In fact, what I would do is is offer, you know, have breaks in between the games of uh, one or two hours. Give yourself some time where your friends all go and and get more whiskey, right? Or run, out, run around in the woods. And you then prep the next session, right? So you know generally where it's going to go. But you can also say, okay, I know we've just finished four hours and now you want to bring this stuff that happened in the last four hours and in the next four hours. This is your opportunity to do so. But I think the idea, I've talked about this with other people. I haven't tried this, so I don't know that it works 100%. I don't have experience and I haven't surveyed a thousand DMs to find out if this is how they do it. So you're just getting my opinion on it. But I think if I were to, if I were in a situation where I would be doing that, I would break it up into big pieces, four hour blocks, right? I try to organize it like a, like a bunch of independent four hour blocks. And then I would give myself enough time in between hour or two hours where I could sit down and prep the next part. Try to do as much prep as I can. If you know that there's maps, if you know that there's treasure or villains or all this stuff, do as much of the eight steps as you can for each of the blocks, but then fill them out as you are, as you're, as you're running through. I think that can work. Well, it's going to be hard, right? If you're running four sessions of D&D, you know, if you're running 16 hours of D&D, it's a lot of D&D and there's not a super easy way to do it. But I think the eight steps can still help. And I think I think the lazy DM styles can can certainly help. And and, and hopefully that works. Well, look, we're getting to the, you know, I don't know. Ken B says, if running milestone leveling, is there a right number of sessions after which the characters should increase in level? My sessions are shorter with only two to two and a half hours and the other three hours. Both groups are fairly RP heavy. So it sometimes takes them longer to get through content. I like to do it like every uh, two to four sessions, I think is about right. And it's up to you. So, you know, I mean, the answer is there's, you know, you, when it feels feels right. You could do it on big blocks in the storyline. Uh, I would probably do it two to four sessions if they're shorter, right? Four sessions if they're shorter, two sessions if they're longer is, is generally about right. But I mean, your your mileage may vary and, it, and it's really up to you. Do you want to you know try to do it whenever there's a kind of a, I, I like to do milestone, right? And so I try to do it whenever there's like a, a, a big event that has occurred. And I like to say, because you finished you know, the trials of Grimskull, you have reached level eight or because you've reached the caves of hunger, you have reached level eight. So, so I think that that's, I think that that's uh, a way to do it. Now, not the best answer in the world for that question. It's really up to you. Try to find the right points, but I'd, I'd say every two to four sessions is about right. The role play pillar is hard. For example, I'm focused on negotiation side. Any tips for keeping the action and tension high, even during a negotiation? Yeah, think through the eyes of the NPCs. What are they doing? F fail forward is a big one. So if, if one bad check shouldn't end the circumstance, just you know keep, keep this gauge in your mind. You don't have to have a physical gauge, but keep this gauge in your mind that's going up and down as conversations are occurring, as checks are being made, and as they're going up or down. And think through the eyes of the NPC. What does the NPC want? 
what is their reaction to the actions that the characters are taking? How do they react to the things that are being said? Just don't be too stark with it, right? It's like if they make one bad statement, don't make it shut completely down. Instead, you know, let it weave up and down. Let the conversation weave up and down and get through them. Some people just don't like doing a lot of role play. So if, if you feel like the circumstances, you know, has ended, move on, right? Like you only want to role play as long as interesting things are happening. And the minute like people are just bantering, time to, time to, time to move on. <clears throat> Jordan T says, I'm running Blades in the Dark for the first time and might have the chance to run Numenera soon. Woo. I haven't run Blades in the Dark. I really want to run it. Uh, and I've been tweaking the eight steps from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master to work with the new systems. I'm curious how you change your approach to game prep when working with non-D&D systems. The, the steps from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the eight steps, tend to work with a lot of different games. There are some games, and Blade in, Blades in the Dark, I think, is one of them, where Blades in the Dark has a particular way you're meant to prep the game. And so I don't know that it works that well with Blades in the Dark. I think probably parts of it likely do. But I think that... Blades in the Dark, some, some RPGs have a way that they expect you to prep. Dungeon World has a way it expects you to prep. Blades in the Dark has a way it expects you to prep. Other RPGs have ways they expect you to run them. And so if they have one, if they have a way built in, you probably want to start with that. And then you can add in things from, if you, if you like the steps from Return and you want to use them, you can, you can bring those in. But other than that, if they don't really have a clear guidance, then many times the eight steps will work, even for other types of RPGs. Uh, a lot of times, like any any game where you're doing exploration, role playing, combat, well, secrets and locations and NPCs and monsters and treasure and all that stuff, those kind of can happen in whether it's a Star Wars game or whether it's Numenera or whether it's D&D. They all kind of work. I don't think... So in some games like uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord, they run a little differently because they expect that each session is a complete story, right? So then you 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 don't really change the steps. I still use the eight steps, for example, but I changed like the start would be different for me because the start was often a montage that the characters would bring to talk about what they had done between sessions. So, you know, so you can tweak it there. But generally speaking, what I have heard from lots of people from having used it for other systems my, myself and from what I've heard from other people have used it is most of the time the eight steps can work for an RPG. The only difference would be if the RPG has a particular style of prep it's expecting as part of its game, like Blades in the Dark does. Then you probably want to start with that and then modify it with the with the steps. One more. How do you deal, Bog, uh, Brogel says, how do you deal with a TPK in the final battle and the boss fight? What happens if you TPK? Excellent question. The answer is my answer, right? Not, uh, all, all of this stuff is just my opinion. It's just my opinion, man. So have have an idea in your mind what would happen if it does tpk if you think you're going to get to a tpk if you look and say man i am going to be turning those dials on tiamat all the way to the right what if tiamat wins in the final battle right what where will the characters go and i think there's some really fun places i had a whole sub campaign set up if orcus had defeated the characters in my fourth edition campaign i was going to have them wake up a year later being resurrected by a bunch of cultists who worship them Right. And those cultists are like, we wanted to bring back the heroes because Orcus is destroying the world. And we need you to bring you back because you were the only guys that ever came close enough to defeating Orcus. And now we're going to bring it back and then start a new campaign where they have to get back to fighting Orcus again. Right. And the same way with Tiamat. Like, what if Tiamat won and, and defeated the characters? Well, maybe the characters are resurrected by Zas Tam. I actually ran a, a one shot like this. Zas Tam resurrects the characters because Zas Tam is like, you know, Tiamat has taken over the Sword Coast completely and her armies of, are, are moving towards Thet. 
Thay, you guys are insiders. I'm going to resurrect you, and now you work for Thay, and we're, you're, our, you're our weapons against Tiamat. Change the story around, but come up with a, why, you know, what, do they come back later? The idea that they're resurrected later is a really good one, right? Jump a year, and you, so many cool things can happen in that year. In some cases, you would look and say, I think that's better than if they won, right? <laughs> like the, the story could be more interesting if they, uh, if they lose than if they win. But those two that I mentioned are both, I wish I had done that. I actually did do it for a Tiamat one-shot game. And so you could do kind of like a what if, right? So think about like, what if? What if the villain wins? What if Imrith succeeds and the ordning is shattered forever? What if, you know, w- what if they wipe out while fighting Oral, the Frost Maiden, and now 10 Towns is destroyed? right? What would they have to do? Some really cool stuff that could occur on a TPK. So the, the main thing though, is if you think you're leading at all and you're using like the lazy, the, the deadly encounter benchmark, the lazy encounter benchmark, and you're like, this might be deadly. I'm going to be turning the dials up really hard, you know, because it's generally pretty hard to TPK characters after certainly like after seventh level or whatever. If you TPK early, you can still do something similar. It's probably not going to be at the same stakes, right? And, and maybe if you TPK, they just, it's time to move on, right? Maybe it's time to just kind of just do it. But you could have like a different group that, that kind of heard about the first group. And it's sort of like Psycho, where, right? We're like, oh, I thought she was the heroine. No, she's not. She's dead. Oh, well, then it's actually about this other person, right? So you could kind of do that, that the main characters actually become the characters that are uh, following after the other characters TPK'd. So those are, some, those are some items. Look at that. We got through all the questions that I had in October for the Patreons, I think. Uh, I'm sure there are people who said, hey, I read a question. I didn't get it. But we will have a November. If you want me to answer questions like this, you can join the Sly Flourish Patreon site. And uh, I set up a monthly Q&A thread where I either answer directly on the thread itself, uh, I'll do a short video, uh, or I'll talk about it here on the show. So if you enjoyed these questions, you have your own questions you'd like to ask that are similar to this, that is your opportunity to do so, is, is to do so through the, the Patreon. I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me today on the DD Talk Show. So much fun. I love doing this show every week. I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me in uh, Twitch today. I love you guys. Really, really great. Stick around because we're going to do uh, our Rhyme of the Frost Maiden prep. And for all the patrons, of course, thank you all very much and have a great day and get out there and play some D&D.